This is CliffCentral.com. Freedom of religion is taken to be a foundational kind of freedom. What role, if any, should the state play when it comes to religion? And how, if at all, should religion be incorporated in schools? On today's episode, Freedom versus Religion. This show is brought to you by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom and hosted by Gwen Nguenya and Mark Oppenheimer. Religion is obviously one of those things that's incredibly important to people. You know, freedom of religion is seen as one of these foundational rights. It's entrenched in our constitution, the idea that everyone should be free to believe what they want. Um, you know, in South Africa, has a history of people being persecuted for their religious beliefs coming to our shores. So the French Huguenots uh, left France because of persecution. Um, you had a, a similar thing happening uh, in America, um, people being wanting a space where they could be free to believe what they wanted to believe. But one of the questions we've got to think about is um, – should the state absorb any of those values? So should schools um, be able to teach um, from a particular religious text and say we're a Christian school, we're a Jewish school, or we're a Hindu school? Um, doesn't matter if you're a public or a private school. Yeah. So for me, how I, I, I would you know approach this this question of religion is to first start off, and perhaps it's kind of coloured by my um, experience in France, is to say, well, you have this idea of secularism, you know, and most people understand it as a separation between you know the church and 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 the government. And so when people talk about the state, they tend to think of it as public institutions. That's the manifestation of the state. Mm. But what's interesting is that my time in France made me think actually the you know, you have public institutions, so secularity there, but then you could also talk about public life. And maybe I can, we can talk a bit about, you know, public life versus, um, secularity in public institutions. But to, um, to, to, to answer the, the, the initial one about then public institutions, I think, you know, definitely religious education, in my view, should be encouraged in schools because I think it forms just part of history, re- various religious wars and even religious, um, you know, texts, etc., form a very rich part of history and indeed much of um, other, you know, philosophy and political philosophy. So, so many different areas of academic and intellectual thought um, have origins in religion. I think it would be difficult to cut that out of any genuine learning process. What you can do is separate religious education, which for me is about its place in history um, and its, its, its effect on intellectual movements, versus religious instruction, which might be indoctrination and an attempt to inculcate people and to evangelize and bring them to um, to a belief in that particular faith. So I think it's a separation between religious instruction and religious education. I think that's a good distinction. Does it matter who you're indoctrinating? So let's say you're at a, a, a state ceremony with a whole bunch of adults uh, and a politician stands up and, you know, it says, you know, we'd like to thank Jesus for... Um, for the rain that's fallen in Cape Town, um, and we're all indebted to Christ for this, or, you know, thank you, Allah, for uplifting the economy, um, and you've got a bunch of adults. Versus you've got a bunch of kids who are impressionable, uh, who are concerned about how they're viewed by their peers, um, and you've got this sort of sense of this is what we believe in the school. It's not merely an education thing. It's uh, this is what you need to do to go to heaven. Um, you need to believe in this. Um, you know, is that acceptable? 
Well, for me, the question becomes, you know, political leaders and, you know, if it's somebody engaged in any kind of function that's related to the state, serve a, serve a public role. So for me, it's it's not different from what happens in schools. So it definitely would need to stick to if they want to make a point, a point that was about religious education or drawing in that religion to make some kind of intellectual point, as opposed mm-hmm. to trying to, you know, persuade people to to join that particular religion. And And furthermore, I think what comes in is this concept of, parity of esteem. I think I've come across it and there's a national policy on religion and education. I mean, it dates back to 2003. I'm not sure if the law has changed since then, but it's just an interesting statement that where, you know, we might want to bring in religion and public life, we then have to ensure there is this parity of esteem so that no religion is given preference over another. So we might want to think that, look, it might be obscure if a school is 90% Christian and let's say people are willing to, you know, express that. So we know for a fact that 90% is Christian to then say they may not pray whilst at school. It, it might be arbitrary. So what we might then choose to do in that sense, say, well, actually, the majority of people here do abide by this particular religion, but to ensure since it is still a public institution that we don't undermine other other faiths, let's then have a moment of silence or, you know, some way to accommodate then everyone of every religion instead of excluding religious um, instruction outside of the or prayer, etc., from the syllabus entirely. Okay, so I think there's a couple of issues there. The first one is whether we can talk about children belonging to a particular religion at all. So Richard Dawkins takes this line that you can never talk about a Christian baby. It's an incoherent concept because in order to be a Christian, you have to hold certain beliefs about the world. You have to take Christ on as your personal savior, and a baby doesn't have the capacity to do that. You might think that that young children are also in this situation where they're told they're Christians or Jews or Muslims. But if you ask them about the tenets of the faith, they just haven't learned enough about it yet to to really consider themselves adherents of the faith. Mm-hmm. And there are certain religions that um, don't consider you a part of the faith until a certain point in time. Once you've uh, learned enough about it or gone through certain rituals, you know, then you're seen as a member. And so you might think that any kind of religious instruction for young children is um, – really going to amount to a kind of unfair indoctrination or brainwashing, regardless of the particular religion that you're pushing. I think you might need to define what a young child is. I mean, I think there are different capacities for different behavior. So the age for for driving might differ to the age for drinking or the age at which you may vote or the age yeah. at which, you know, you may consent to an abortion, etc. So we might so want to say religion is… So we're talking about primary schools, is, for example. So yes. you're talking about, you know, kids are all um, pre-teens, quite young, um, quite impressionable. Um, care a lot about social status, you know, um, would it be fair for the state to say in this realm where you've got these impressionable kids, there shall be no religious instruction. If you want to do it in a private facility, that's up to you. You know, if you want to send your kids to, you know, uh, to church on, on Sundays and have a Sunday school, fine, you know, um, but not, we're not gonna, we're not gonna be involved in that as a public institution. Well, for me, a public institution should never be engaged in religious instruction, whether it's, uh, no matter the age of the child. It's just about religious education. Okay, and there you so don't have you, the problem of an impressionable mind because you're just telling them about. Yes, and in that case, or, you hope the mind is impressionable. You do want them to absorb the knowledge that, look, in this particular year, there were people who believed in this particular, you know, figure for these and these reasons, and these are the events of history that played out, or whatever it is. You can analyze that text, but in, from a purely academic perspective, from a knowledge perspective, and I think that there's no age in which that should not be allowed. Okay. So, but there's still a tension between, well, 
can you possibly teach the history or the events of every single religion? But then I still think that's an academic matter. So that's the same question, a philosopher, a, you know, a scientist or any, you know, I, I think anyone engaged in any type of instruction will need to think for themselves, you know, what, what content and which sources do I include in teaching the subject? So I think a teacher of religious education is no different to a teacher of politics or any other subject who will then have to make choices and, pr- and prioritize particular areas at the exclusion of others. But that's an academic decision and shouldn't be seen as a religious decision. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about freedom within religion. So, you know, one of the examples that's often talked about is um, people wearing a burqa, right? Yes. So, um, in France, there's a view that people ought not to be allowed to wear a burqa, and that you've got the state preventing this religious activity. Um, but you also have people who would prefer not to wear a burqa and are required to wear it by their religious leaders, and that there'll be yeah. social sanctions or other kinds of sanctions um, for not doing so. So... To what extent do we think that religions ought to be allowed to impose obligations on their members or those that they claim as their members? Well, I think that example actually raises two two interesting areas of discussion. The one is the one I was, you know, alluding to earlier, and this is quite now a nice segue into that discussion is about secularism and public life. So, someone wearing a burqa in, 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 in public, and then the other question is around choice and religion, and when can we? How do we adjudicate choice with mm. regards to religion? So, on the first, you know point about, you know, public life. I think in my time, and of course, there could be people who are interpreting it uh, differently, but I think some, at least in France, held the view that, you know, public life as well as a, as a public space. So when you're walking down the road, when you're in a bus, wherever you are, you are in, in a public space. And in public spaces, everyone should feel equal and welcome. And there needs to be secularity, not just in public institutions. So not just when you walk into a school or into a, a parliament building, but actually all areas of, 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 the, of the public, cont- you know, is a manifestation of the secular society that we're trying to build. Mm. So even there, I don't want to be confronted with a bank teller wearing, you know, a cross sign or, you know, somewhere else walking down the road and, you know, being or sitting in a bus, in a public bus and being confronted with, you know, someone wearing any kind of religious symbol. So that actually religion needs to be completely private, something thoughts you you hold inside you and something you only practice inside those religious institutions or at home. But there can never be any manifestation of that religion in a public institution and in public life. And I think that's an interesting question. I and mean, I don't have necessarily a solution for it, but my interpretation of tolerance is that we should actually accept that these are acceptable. Um, you know, if, if, if we're going to be tolerant, tolerance doesn't just mean, well, having people hide what they believe, etc., but they should be allowed to to express um, their religion. So for me, religious freedom is, is linked to religious, um, the freedom of religious expression. As long as you're not trying to coerce others in any violent uh, way to, to, to become part of that religion. But it's certainly an interesting question around public life. Yeah. Sorry, so, I'll deal with the choice maybe if you have something yeah, to let's, respond let's, let's to, to public life. Let's pause because it's yeah. a great, it's a great yeah. question. Um, so we can accept that some people are going to be very offended by other people's religious displays. Yes. So, you know, you can imagine the staunch secularist um, feeling aghast whenever they see anyone wearing a cross or a Star of David um, or a hijab and feeling like the other person ought not to be allowed to do that. But if we see religious freedom as analogous to other kinds of expression, so let's say you have a 
a Democratic Alliance T-shirt um, or you support Front National and you want to wear a little ribbon or something, you know, that those are the kinds of other things that we might not like, um, but we accept that that's, you know, in a democratic society, people like to be expressing their political views uh, and that religious views are of a similar enough nature. Well, offense is, 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 is part of it, but I think where most people in, in defending a secularity in public life would, 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 the direction they would go in is to say, it's not about offense, it's about integration. So the reason we don't want public, these public displays of religious symbols is not because somebody might be offended, but they might think that they do not belong. So we don't want to create an impression that because 90% of French people are Catholic, that this is a place that belongs primarily to Catholic people. We want a sense to be this is, you know, this is a French nation, everyone is French, or this is South Africa and everyone is South African. So you don't want Muslims or anyone else, people of the Baha'i faith, walking around in South Africa and feeling that they are a minority because of their religious beliefs and they're living in a country where, you know, predominantly everyone... And it abides by this, by this particular faith. It may be true, but you don't want people for the sake of integration to be confronted with it on a daily basis everywhere they are and everywhere where they interact with public life. So I think for me, and I think in, in those countries that might or people hold that view, that it's about integration and that it might then discourage well, if you want to go to, in that direction, terrorism or other acts, but that it brings communities together when there isn't a, an outward display of, you know, othering. Well, it seems that in practice what it does is that it, it isolates people because those public displays are quite important. So, for example, for the religious adherent, they believe that they're obliged to wear the, the yarmulke or the, um, or the hijab and that being denied the capacity to do so um, puts them in a very awkward position. Um, so they're going to feel persecuted. The other problem with mm-hmm. this sort of, you know, can't we all just be one one thing? It starts to sound very totalitarian to my mind. Yes. So we can imagine, you know, an authoritarian communist regime saying, you know what, people can't, can't all afford the same clothes and you feel as an outsider if you're in a different class. So you're just going to get the state-sanctioned uniform, you know, and it'll look like our national flag. So we'll have this sense of nationalism. It'll, you know, um, you, know you can imagine this sort of South African uniform and we all wear it and uh, you know, we're all united together. And if you wear anything else, you know, there will be trouble. Yeah. You know, those sorts of things yes, start to worry Yes, it's kind of a, an authoritarian uh, circularism. Yeah. Um, there's certainly in my mind always been something that just rubs me the wrong way with, you know, the words like integration, assimilation, speaking of, you know, in how to deal with an immigrant population and should we be trying to get them to, you know, conform to our ways mm. because I think in order to, to engage in that kind of project, you would have to clearly define what are our values or you know, what are our ways, etc., in order to have someone, everyone be the same. And I think that's the challenge is that we might think that there is a South African way of life that we can integrate everyone to, but is there really? So I think, you know, liberals are able to accept this value of pluralism, that there are going to be competing notions of the good and that on some level we don't know what those things are. So we know that um, harming someone against their will is not part of the good life. But, you know, whether you prefer, you know, um, yeah. chocolate or vanilla ice cream, it's it's up to you. There's a subjective preference there. You know, which particular yeah. God you pray to. We don't know which one, you know, is the correct God or if there is a God at all. Um, and so you want to allow people to have these different values. You know, there are different ways of, of expressing yourself, mm-hmm. of, you know, different foods you want to, you know, want to indulge in. You know, you want a society that can allow for that, provided that you don't actually cause harm to anyone else. And the mere offense of, well, you know, people are going to feel isolated or, you know, it makes this assumption of fragility as well about your citizens, that they're not really able to deal with difference, that the only yeah. way they'll deal with difference is in some sort of hostile manner, you know.
Yes. Well, I mean, I, I definitely do want to deal with the, with the issue of public choice. But when you spoke about fragility, I then wanted to say, actually, it's not so much about the fragility of the citizens, but the fragility of the country as a whole. So some people might view the integration project as actually a matter of national security, that the reason why you have, you know, you know, civil disturbances or terrorism, etc., is because of this increasing gulf between the values that are shared in a particular society. So it becomes actually a matter of how do we create a stable state, a stable society, and they'll argue that integration is perhaps one of the ways to do so. I mean, I'm not saying I believe in this. I'm yes. playing devil's advocate, but I'm just trying to say that there might be a higher order concern aside from the fragility of you know individuals. might be that we're actually doing this for national security purposes. So I think you've got to ask yourself which, which values actually undermine uh, a state's safety. So if you've got mm-hmm. people saying, well, we don't believe uh, in a democracy. We're theocrats. And what we'd like to do is undermine your ungodly system and install a religious dictatorship, okay? And we will um, use violent means to achieve that, okay? Those values are hostile to a secular state, okay? And you have good reason yeah. to isolate those people, okay? But if you're just saying, you know, um, I I believe that uh, Zenu is, you know, um, you know, this ancient alien who played an important role in Scientology, you know, and uh, that, you know, this is, this is where your religious adherence ought to be. You might go, okay, well, that's pretty weird. Um, but, you know. Yes, but I think, look, I'm definitely, I must make sure that I say I'm definitely playing devil's advocate here because I might start to seem like um, a bit of a, <laughs> you know, extremist. But I think what you're doing is you're having quite a benevolent view of, of religion. You know, it's just kind of this faith or this belief. I think for me, religions represent ideas. Mm-hmm. So religions are ideas. They're, they're probably more akin to a belief in, you know, anarchy or whatever whatever else than a simple, you know, harmless, okay, I believe there's a, a teacup fair and that's who I worship, you know. Well, as long as that teacup fairy doesn't order you to murder people who don't, who disagree with your views or, you know, it depends what the instructions you're meant to follow. And, yeah. and that's the thing about religion is that it's not just a, a belief or a faith in a particular figure, but that figure actually, you know, instructs their followers typically to carry out their lives in a particular way. So that these then become action steps that anyone who wants to be a true believer in X religion has to follow. And you might want to say, actually, in the same way we might want to exclude people who don't believe in a you know, secular state and say this doesn't belong in our society, you might want to say, actually, these this religion proposers and people who follow this religion therefore become proponents of violence in these other areas and therefore we might want to exclude them for, from our society on those reasons. Not because they believe in X, but because of what X tells them to do. Sure. So what's difficult, of course, is when you're dealing with um, you know, the, the three big monotheistic religions, they're a mixed bag, right? Yeah. So they're telling you to you know, look after the sick and be charitable and be loving and um, they're also telling you to go and wipe out the enemy, you know, yeah. whoever that happens to be at the time. So, you know, and we know that some people go and act out on this stuff. You know, you had the Crusades, you know, you have um, Islamic jihads. Um, so it's not clear that everyone is always going to be influenced. And you might want to ban certain formations of that to say, well, hold on, when you've got ISIS on your door, you know, being a, yes, a religious particular organization. Sects maybe. Yeah, yeah. That you have good reason to, you know, either want to ban them from your nation or to, you know, force assimilation. Um, but let's, let's, let's go back to the question that we paused about this freedom within a religion. Yes, exactly. So, to what extent should people be um, free to to indoctrinate you know people inside of religion? So we talked a little bit earlier about kids. Um, should you be free to you know raise your kid in a religious fashion? 
you know, to have them circumcised when they're a baby, um, you know, to push them through, let's say, um, female genital mutilation at a later stage in life, you know, make them undergo a series of rituals, you know, and constrain a lot of their freedoms. Uh, is yeah. that acceptable? I'd need to think. I'll let you go first on the, on the, for example, you know, um, circumcision of children, etc. But I want to deal with, let's say we're talking about adults here and a religion that enforces something in a particular group of adults, they say wearing um, burqa in the case of women or um, etc. And I know sometimes it's going to be a misrepresentation because, you know, force may be the wrong word. It might just be when you reach a particular stage that you might be encouraged to. And I think with any religion, there might be different, um, you know, denominations or sex, etc. that espouse different values. Mm. But let's just assume that you have this religion where you are forced to engage in a particular conduct or wear a particular item of clothing at a particular stage. I think for me what's important about is that it's, it represents a choice. So if somebody willingly engages in that behavior, if as a woman you willingly choose to you know, keep yourself covered, I think that's a choice that even though it might seem you know, people might have objections outside of that religion, but if that woman has been able to make a choice, that needs to be respected. And then it becomes then assessing the, the environment around choice. I think a woman who chooses to wear a headscarf or a burqa, etc., in in France is very different to a woman who might choose to do so, or who might who might do so in a you know theocracy. So someone who has no escape. So you can't really call that a choice because, well, there was no choice to be made. I think in order to have made a choice, there have to have been other options on the table. Mm. I don't think you can say this was the only choice in front of me and I chose it. <laughs> you had no option but to choose it. So I think we have to look at that in, in, in different contexts. That's why I might I might discourage um, the the critique of wearing burqas in a country like France, etc. Um, and say, look, these women should be free to left alone and to to make their own decisions, and even critique those who might wish to critique their wearing of burqa. But I might not have the same approach to women in Iran, for example. I might say, actually, we must critique um, what's happening there because there is no actual choice. Sure, and the critique might open up the choices, right? People say, oh, it hadn't dawned on me that there was another option. Yeah. What about? So we tend to give a lot of weight to people's religious choices. So when someone says, um, look, I can't attend this thing because I have a religious obligation, it's the Sabbath, or it's a holy day. Yeah. We take that very seriously. Um, should we be doing that? You know, Are there certain kinds of religious belief that we are just um, by nature unreasonable? So if we think about the Scientologist who believes in a 75-million-year-old alien, you know, um, you know, can we do any kind of internal evaluation on these beliefs? I mean, they're all of a supernatural nature. For me, the integrity or serious intention to engage in a particular behavior is important. So I think some of them need to be assessed in that in that way. And I think it depends on the privileges that you attach to it. So for example, in some in many countries, you know, churches or religious institutions don't have to pay taxes, you mm. know, because there's some public benefit there. And I would argue, you know, that in order to then apply as a as a religion as a church, you have to be seen to be seriously engaging in however you wish to then define a, a, a religion. But I think there has to be some kind of serious intent there. It cannot be people who are just making a mockery of the system. And by mockery, I don't mean people who insult in the system. Insult is, is perfectly fine. But for the purposes of the law to carry out um, you know, efficiently, we have to make sure that people are actually engaging the behavior they are engaging in. It's, for example, if you couldn't sign a rental contract, if in fact what you're doing is purchasing the property, there has to be a serious intention to engage in whatever you know the law is allowing you to do. Well, so let's think, look at two cases yeah. there. So let's say you've got, the, you've got the Church of Satan, okay, who got a lot of publicity recently for erecting a statue of Bofomet, which is this sort of uh, 
uh, goat-like uh, demonic figure with two little kids next to him, and he's reading from the Book of Satan. Yes. He erected this outside of a, a courthouse. Um, and then you've got the Church of the Giant Spaghetti Monster, right? And on some level, you might want to question the sincerity of their beliefs. You know, are they engaged in these religious practices and festivals because they actually believe in Satan or the giant spaghetti monster? Or because what they want to do is show up other religions. Okay. Mm. And to my mind, if we're talking about a public funding of, uh, of these churches, why is it that important that they're, whether their intent is satirical or not? Why do we say, well, if you really believe in Satan, you get some state money, you know, uh, or you don't have to pay tax. But if you're only believing in Satan to undermine Christianity, then no. Well, it depends. I mean, this is where we where we might, and this is, I think I'm opening up a broad debate here where, you know, privately, the both of us have had this discussion before where I've said that I think there are many rights that encapsulate dignity. And I don't think there needs to be a separate recognition of dignity because you can have other rights, um, you know, whether it's a right to housing or a right to, you know, access water that encompasses dignity in them. It, it doesn't have to be its own separate right. But I think um, for those who do believe there should be the separate idea and protection of dignity, that's where it might come in to say, you know, we protect religion because it's fundamentally a part of someone's humanity or identity, whatever religion or belief, faith that they hold. Whereas somebody who's purely making a mockery as being satirical, nothing, their their sense of dignity would not, um, in most cases, be and be eroded by denying them any privilege that might owe to someone who generally does hold that belief. So for them, it's not a matter of dignity. They're making... You know, they wish to make a point, which they are free to make without the privileges that accrue to an actual religion. So, would it matter if if you if you asked the the person who purports to be a believer in the giant spaghetti monster, do you believe? And he says, No, I don't. But I I do sincerely believe that there is no god, uh, and I believe that you know by purporting to believe in this thing, I can undermine everyone else's belief. And so, it's important that I'm entitled to engage in this ritual. Um, because I think I want to show up everyone else as being foolish in some manner, that all the arguments that go towards the existence of a God, you know, yeah. equally apply to this fictional data. But then they've made, created. but then they've met my criteria. They've shown there's a genuine, you know, maybe public benefit or I'm not sure what it should be, whether it should be a dignity assessment or, you know, you actually, you get the status because it's, it's some kind of public benefit or public or grouping that many members of the public might wish to join. But I think there should still be some kind of criteria and perhaps there could be people of of an, not necessarily a sincere religion, but who might be able to meet those criteria on other grounds. But I think there must be a process as opposed to someone just, you know, I'm going to start a religion of the goblin monster just so I can avoid paying taxes, you know. Or, I'm, I mean, uh, taxes is, is an example, but I think there tends to be certain societal privileges sometimes that, that accrue to, to recognized um, religions. Well, isn't the view that... Um you know, if you if you believe that that God's talking to you on your own, everyone will think that you're insane. But if you get enough people to believe it, then you have a religion, and then yeah. we can start affording you these protections. <laughs> um, I think that's a nice way for us to conclude. We've, you know, it's a very complicated topic. You know, we've talked a lot about you know freedoms within a religion, um, freedoms of belief, the importance of why you want to protect them as a state, and how to deal with the problems of pluralism in a very complicated society. Thanks from me, Cecilia Koch from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom, for joining us for this episode of Freedom Versus. We hope you found it thought-provoking. And thanks to Mtoba Chafi for the editing, visuals and graphics, and Greg Cohen for the audio. 
Please subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel, Freedom Versus. That's two words, and Versus is spelled V-E-R-S-U-S. There, you can watch the discussions between Gwen and Mark. Our YouTube channel also features additional content. Enjoy! This is CliffCentral.com.